This Wellness Couch podcast is brought to you by the Wellness Couch Club. Get exclusive access to the Wellness Guys and Marcus Pierce in live events, webinars, newsletters, and more for less than two bucks a day. Go to www.thewellnesscouchclub.com. Thewellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. The Real Food Real is a fresh and educational podcast dedicated to your health. We get real on current research, debunk food myths, and educate you on how to just eat real food. Your host, Steph Lowe, the natural nutritionist, is one of Australia's leading sports nutritionists, passionate about simplifying nutrition and addicted to coconut lattes, smoothies, and sweet potato. If you love the show, please leave us a review on iTunes. Share the real food real with your friends and continue to spread the real food love. Hi team, it's great to have you here for another episode of The Real Food Real. Today on the show, we have Katie Pettuccini from Holistic Endurance. Katie has a Bachelor of Exercise Science with a major in Sports Psychology and is a Triathlon Australia Level 1 Triathlon Coach. I'm really excited to introduce you to Katie as we work closely together with our athletes and share a really similar philosophy, which you'll learn more about today. Welcome to the show, Katie, and thanks for being a part of The Real. Thanks, Steph. It's great to have you here, and I'm really excited to share your story with our listeners, and I'd love to know more about the philosophy behind holistic endurance. Yeah, certainly. Uh, It came about mainly because of my personal experience as an athlete, and that drove my passion to become a coach. I'd been in the health and wellness industry for a significant time after my bachelor degree in exercise science, where I majored in sports psych, but took my work more down the rehabilitation and functional movement side of things. And after eight years in the industry and becoming a triathlete myself, I really wasn't finding, I guess, the service uh, that I wanted from coaches. Uh, As a female, I just felt that that was lacking and I couldn't quite find someone who fitted my needs. I learnt that I wasn't alone and that was one of the driving forces behind getting my qualification as a level one coach and utilising my previous knowledge with exercise science. Yeah, beautiful. So tell us more about what your experience was as an athlete and certainly what you felt was missing back when you first started. Yeah, sure. When I first started... It was great fun. Like most people, when we jump into this sport, it's all new. We don't run into many problems. The first year generally goes off without a hitch and there's not huge expectations. So that fun and liveliness is still in the sport. As the years go on, it gets a bit more competitive and you're benchmarking yourself against others and your previous results. What happened for me is I wasn't really getting anywhere results-wise and everyone around me was, and I didn't quite understand why. What I now know was that I was doing too much. I was following, obviously, a stock standard program that other people were. I was part of a big triathlon club, and it just simply wasn't for me. And I now know that that's the case for many people. I'm certainly not alone. Yeah, that's so true. I mean, we see it a lot. There's that more is more approach, and, you know, athletes sort of dive from sprint distance up to Ironman in a really short period of time Mm. Uh, and it certainly does end in disaster for more people than we probably actually realise. Yeah, and I was very aware of that and even with that in mind, took my time going from sprint distance to long course. 
unfortunately it didn't make a difference for me so the wheels really started to fall apart or off in my first year of training for my first long course 70.3 and the battles continued thereafter Okay, so then let's go sort of into the philosophy of holistic endurance a little bit deeper. What what do you usually experience with, say, an athlete that comes to you in a similar situation as, say, your personal story, mm-hmm. and what changes do you make immediately? It's obviously very dependent on that person's circumstance. So if they're in the off-season, it's, it's much easier. If they're about to race, there's there's some significant changes that need to happen to get them to feeling good so they can race at their optimum. If we take the example of someone that's on an off-season and they've got the time to build back up, so let's say an athlete comes to me and they're suffering from adrenal fatigue or excessive fatigue, unusual fatigue, um, hormone imbalance, they haven't improved for, say, 12 months, etc. One, I would look at what they've been doing and shift things up. And generally, I'd say 99% of people that come to me, it's because they're doing too much volume or too much intensity or worst case scenario, they're doing both. So the first thing I do is implement some heart rate training uh, using Phil Maffetone's method, which we call Math Heart Rate. Uh, It's basically low heart rate training. So that will help them on a fatigue level and adrenal level as well, recover from their sessions, but also get fitter. So it's drilling that into people's minds that you do need to go slower to get faster. So that's probably the number one thing that I do with people uh, when they first get started and they're having lots of trouble improving. Yeah, beautiful. So I've noticed on your website the the first key element of holistic endurance is that the program is personalised and periodized for optimal hormonal adaptation. Yeah, correct. That's been key, one for myself and my results, but my athletes as well, and has proven to be quite successful. So when I have female athletes, I will periodize their program around their hormone cycle. Now, in the scenario that they have a regular cycle of 28, 30 days, I can program their triathlon or running programs around that four-week cycle. With our hormone fluctuations each month, there are optimum times for us to produce good training and there are other times when our body is telling us to slow down, it's not happy, it's fatigued, it's bloated, PMS symptoms. And it's at those times that it's really not necessary to push our body when it's not designed to be pushed. So what I like to do is work the program around those hormonal changes Therefore, we're not pushing our bodies when they're not designed to, meaning that as we build each month on top of the other, the accumulative fatigue, the bad bad kind of accumulative fatigue doesn't get on top of the athlete and they don't end up in a a dark black hole. Yeah, I absolutely love this approach. I think, you know, the... The exponential build is is the first sign of danger when you, when the athlete is never getting a, a break. So the four week blocks is you know is a fantastic concept. And have you had some great success with your athletes? Yeah, definitely. I mean, who wouldn't love to hear from their coach? You don't have to go out and ride five hours with twenty minute race efforts mixed in on day one of your cycle. Have a rest <laughs> day and let's do it on day five when you feel great. 
Yeah, perfect. I mean, it makes so much sense when you really think about it, huh? Mm-hmm, definitely. And the only exception to that is if someone was racing on the week of their cycle. There's been so much research, not enough, but there are plenty of articles out there that prove that it doesn't make a difference. Um, a recent survey that I did shows that it does make a difference for a large percentage of women in terms of mainly the PMS symptoms. It's not the cycle itself during the race. It's the symptoms leading up in the week of the race that cause the most problems. So that's the other element that I work on with my athletes in conjunction with you to help balance out their cycle and hormone imbalances so that those PMS symptoms are nowhere near as bad or ultimately non-existent. Yeah, I mean, we have this conversation a lot with our athletes. I think the the fatigue and the PMS are almost expected. It's mm-hmm. almost seen as a normal part of endurance training. And I know you're certainly here to, to break down that myth, aren't you? Yeah, definitely. We don't have to live like that. Uh, it's, it's not fun. And that was me for a very long time. I was always living in fear of that fourth week. Oh, is it here? How far away is it? I'm going to feel terrible. I'm going to have fatigue and bloating and... I'm not going to be a very nice person either. So I was always counting that down. These days I don't really know when it's coming and that's a really good sign for me. Yeah, great. The proof is in the pudding, as they say. Mm-hmm. Very good. So let's chat nutrition. As a coach, what would you summarize your real food message to be? Use real food for fueling, first of all. Uh, heal the gut which is what real, eating real food and fueling with real food will do for you. I remove traditional gels from my uh, racing and training uh, a year after getting into long course because of the problems I was having with insulin resistance, lack of weight loss, fat loss, uh, and the adrenal fatigue because of all the sugars. That was the greatest shift I made in my nutrition is removing those sports products. Uh, you helped me repair my gut with uh, a plethora of strategies, uh, but the greatest one was introducing freedom fuel uh, and making my own gels. So I highly recommend that to my athletes. And then the second phase that you helped me with and we implemented over the last 15 months was becoming fat adapted. Yeah, beautiful. So that's a a sort of a hot topic at the moment and a lot of athletes are diving in there. From a practical point of view, do you want to just share like some quick tips as to how you really nailed your fat adaption? How did I nail it? Very good question. It wasn't a natural thing for me. It did take time. I'm a total carb craver. Well, it was. Uh, It didn't come easily to me and I had to... I have, a, I guess, multiple attempts to get it right. Um, let me think. My greatest piece of advice for that adaptation, bulletproof coffee, first of all, was the best thing for my performance, so not eating before I trained and just having my, my fat black. That was a, a game changer for me. And then secondary for that was fueling on the bike with baked goods or cashew butter. Yeah, so you just stripped out the refined carbohydrates. Yeah, exactly right. It seems to be the solution. <laughs> <laughs> Immensely. Like from an energy and mood point of view, I've never enjoyed long rides so much in my life. My recent Ironman Bustleton build was the most enjoyable for, for a number of reasons, but I was doing double the distance uh, in training and I've never been happier in regards to a, a build prior to a race. Yeah, beautiful. 
Mm. And I would say that your fat adaption was the best it's been in the lead up to Barso. Would you agree? Yeah, absolutely. Um, key factor there, I think it just finally clicked. Like it took me time because of the insulin resistance factor and I didn't get the results so quickly so I didn't grasp it very quickly. Uh, even though I was trying my hardest, I was always reached for my favorite gluten-free precinct bread. Uh, I think it kicked in probably September, October for me of 2014 and then I raced in Port Macquarie in October for the first time with no breakfast and that was the real uh, proof in the pudding for me that I felt so good in that swim. I PB'd, I've swam a average pace faster than I've swum 100 flat out so uh, I didn't have heavy legs, the energy was brilliant and I was, I was just so stoked with that experience because uh, previously having to either get up at 3 a.m. and have a meal to ensure that it was three hours out for my race is just impractical in my eyes. And if I ate closer, I would experience that, yeah, the heavy legs. Yeah, I think this is an important conversation because I know you're the same for Busso. Yes. And um, it's often a little bit overwhelming for people. They look at an Ironman as being a nine-hour event or a 10-hour event or even a 17-hour event and People can't fathom the idea that they don't eat food before they enter that event. Mm. But we always break it down to, to think about the swim duration. And, you know, for most people, they're doing an hour or 90 minutes. And, you know, in training, we've done fasted training that well exceeds that duration. So breaking it down and having a look at, you know, when you start fueling on the bike really does make it seem more doable. And certainly trialing it in a 70.3 gives you that proof that, you don't need to be dumping extra food in unnecessarily. Yeah, it was a really interesting experience because I understood the science. I'd seen the science applied to other athletes with great success. Until you see it for yourself, you're not going to be 100% in the game and on board. And that's what that 70.3 in October did for me. It was like, okay, I've got my own social proof now. I am not concerned about doing this for Bustleton. This is the way to go. Yeah, and certainly the time that you invested in working on your metabolic efficiency is a really important take-home because, you know, it does take time and mm. it can take a lot longer for some people that are starting from quite a carb-dependent state, particularly with hormone dysregulation as well. Yeah, and that was me all over. I remember being so resistant to this because I was one of those people that would wake up at 4 a.m., 5 a.m., starving and within five minutes I'm hungry sick and nauseous I just needed food in the morning I couldn't comprehend how I could possibly go out and train like that so sure I had to go to some training sessions feeling a little bit nauseous and there were some training sessions I remember where I was famished and my grumbly tummy but I got over that and boy am I glad I did yeah it's pretty life-changing yeah and it just, that didn't go on for long either it was just a short-term pain long-term gain <laughs> Exactly. So, so let's go into the future plans for holistic endurance. I know you've got some fantastic projects coming up in 2015. Share with us what's happening, say, now and, and into the next year. Yeah, sure. I recently launched a survey for female endurance athletes. It focused on key areas such as adrenal fatigue, PMS, our experience with our cycles during training and racing and how that affects females. 
It looked at stress a little bit on nutrition and in general just holistic endurance. The purpose of that survey was for me to get a better understanding of what females in our sport actually need to know and what they're experiencing so that I can focus my efforts in my coaching, my blog, but more importantly my ebook that's coming out this year so that the content is relevant and it's going to help women in our sport. Beautiful. And you had quite a good response to the survey, is that correct? Yeah, it was amazing. I was absolutely stoked. Thank you so far to everyone that's done it. I will put the link or give the link to Steph to share with everyone else because I still would love more responses. The more data I have, the better, for obvious reasons. Uh, so far, I've done a little bit of uh, analysis on the responses and I've been surprised that I've also had a lot of validation for the philosophy that I coach with. So, for example, the percentage of women that are affected by the PMS cycle and interrupts their training, I don't remember off the top of my head, I remember it being quite high, over 60%. Percentage of women suffering some form of adrenal fatigue, thyroid imbalance, uh, loss of cycle amenorrhea, anything to do with hormones was up or over 80%. So this just solidified the fact that I'm on the right path and I really need to help more women out there understand that this is not a normal part of training for endurance. We, we can work around it. Yeah, great. It's so good that everyone's been really open with that sort of information because it really does change the game. We are finally grasping that, you know, training needs to be so relative and that, you know, it's it's not more is more or a set number of hours that equals success. Yeah, it's really hard for people to understand that. Like, I, I think it's gradually changing because it's getting out there more. This idea that you can train for an Ironman on 10 hours, it's possible. There's social proof coming out more and more and more elite athletes are talking about the fact that they train slower to get faster. And that's what age groupers, I think, need to hear and understand that you don't have to be pushing the red line five sessions a week to improve. Yeah, beautiful. Really big on spreading that message because I just feel that we're not going to be able to stay in this sport for the long haul if that's the way we treat our bodies. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, we we do it for fun. Mm. You know, you'd hope that people are doing it as a, as a you know a fantastic hobby and so to be able to enjoy it for as long as possible is really key yeah and for females as well the other important factor that comes up is if it's not done correctly in our 20s early 30s we can do damage that leaves us infertile and I obviously I don't want to see female athletes going through that having this great um, you know five to ten year period in triathlons and endurance and then they're ready to start a family and discover that they can't or it takes two years and, and lots of medical bills to, to get there. Yeah, so it's it's setting the systems up now. So if there's an athlete that's listening that is really loving your philosophy or you know certainly thinks they might need to tailor their approach this way, what's their next step, would you say, Katie? Sure. So there's two scenarios really. One is that someone has a regular cycle 
and that makes it a little bit easier to implement the philosophy. And two is that there's some abnormalities in the cycle. Either they've got a short cycle, a long cycle, or perhaps a non-existent cycle, in which case we would need to do a bit more of a specialised approach. So I will tackle the normal cycle, the 28 to 30 days. Uh, the first thing they can do is obviously start tracking their cycle, know when it's coming, and schedule their rest day or a low-intensity, low-volume session on day one and particularly scheduling their recovery their entire week about four days out from their cycle. Now, as an individual, you're going to know when you feel it most. Some people are worse on, say, day 28. Some people are worse on day two and you've got to work that based on what you know of your body and when it's not at its optimum. And then from there, I go into the full details of this uh, in my ebook, so that will be coming in the next couple of months. But to give you a brief overview, we start to lift intensity and volume back into the program around day five, again, depending on the athlete. And then come ovulation, we're looking at day 14, 15, again, lowering volume and intensity or having a rest day around ovulation if you are someone that experiences ovulation symptoms such as deep fatigue that lasts just that day or two. From there, we can continue to build and have intensity with the right amount of balance throughout the week up until about day 24, again, depending on the person. And then we start to bring it back down into the recovery week. In those build weeks, you still need balance. I'm not saying that you do volume and intensity every session. We need to look at it again, holistically. So for example, you have a balance of recovery sessions, low heart rate, math heart rate, and then intensity is still important. I really want to get that across. I think some people are confused that they're being told to slow down and lower their heart rate in in training and think that there's no place for intensity. There absolutely is. It's just more a ratio of 80% low intensity, 20% high intensity to build that speed and cardiac uh, fitness. Yeah, lovely. I mean, I, I think that makes a lot of sense too. If you're doing long calls, you're certainly spending a lot of the time, the time racing at that aerobic pace because you're out there for so long. So you certainly need to train your engine to be good at that intensity. Exactly. So this is the way I explain it to people. So if they want to run a marathon off the bike, And currently, to hold their goal pace, their heart rate is 150 beats per minute. The idea of base training and low heart rate training following the math method is that we can maintain that same pace, let's say at um, 140 to 145 beats per minute, again, linking into that fat adaptation principle that we use more efficient fueling uh, to get greater energy that's long-lasting rather than pushing that red line where we are likely to bonk. Yeah, well, there's such a high carbohydrate requirement as the heart rate gets above the math. Yeah, and then obviously that, a marathon is a long time, but there might be uh, times where there's hills or you know you need to, that you're going to do a surge or you've got it into your race plan that there are particular parts where you're going to lift the intensity. And that's where you time your fueling into it to ensure that those little surges are effective. Yeah, that's that strategic fueling approach. Yeah. Beautiful. 
Great. So we're going to switch directions just a little bit just to find out more about you personally. Mm -hmm. Can you share with us what a day on your plate looks like? Yeah, sure. As I mentioned before, I do love starting my day with a fat black. So I'm a coffee with coconut milk kind of girl. And if I'm training, I'll head straight out on that and that alone. And when I get back, I would have a smoothie with coconut milk and kale and my pea protein and chia seeds and raspberries and blueberries and some nut butter. I I do love my fats these days. And my lunches would be um, salads with avocado and walnuts. And I'm loving mangoes in my salad at the moment with some protein. And dinner's just your stock standard. We're not very exciting. But basically, my plate looks like your website. Just look up Steph's recipes and you'll know what I eat. (laughs) Uh, If I'm not training, I will have a smoothie at the start of the day. I'm going through a bit of a adrenal repair at the moment post-Ironman. So I am removing coffee in the morning, which will at completely, which is super difficult, but I'm getting there. Well done, it's a process. <laughs> yeah, I did it for 12 weeks last year. However, this year seems to be much harder. I'm very attached. <laughs> <laughs> and any snacking or are you down to the sort of standard three meals a day? Yeah, I'm down big time. I used to eat more good eight times a day. And even as a trainer, it's actually a little bit shameful. I remember coaching so many people to weight loss and getting them to eat six times a day. A little bit embarrassed. Um, oh, no, we all did it. I can put my <laughs> hand up and say that in the past that, that has come out of my mouth too because, yeah. I mean, this is 10 years ago now. Mm. Think about how the nutrition world has changed in the oh, last decade. I know. Thank goodness it has. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, so I would say, yeah, I'm down to three some days four, but not that often, especially since Iron Man. I really have lost my appetite, which has been interesting. I've never been like that before. <laughs> but I think that's an important point as well. You have to eat relative to your training. So obviously yes. before Iron Man, there's going to be certainly periodization of your nutrition. And then when you're not racing or certainly not training, you know, 15 hours a week, there's a different mm. requirement again. So being flexible, metabolically flexible, we call it, is a big part of it. Yeah, I really noticed it this time. I think it is due to the fat adaptation. Previously, when I haven't trained or had a break after racing, I would still be super hungry and crave lots of carbs and sugar. Uh, That hasn't necessarily happened this time, which is fantastic. So I've managed to stay lean, race day lean, uh, and I certainly have not watched what I've eaten, and I have not done an ounce of exercise until this week, so that was five weeks ago. (laughs) That's a great sign, though. That must be a real shift for you based on, you know, you've, I know you've done like over 40 triathlons, so not all the long course, but <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's a big comparative there. Mentally, it's been fascinating and it's just solidifying the fact that the role that stress has, which we actually haven't spoken about, um, the role that cortisol has played uh, for my athletes and for myself and amongst the coaching philosophy that not having that training stress is all that's required to keep me lean. I don't have to count calories and macronutrients. I simply need to meditate and do yoga. Mm-hmm. I'm glad yeah. you said that because yeah. those are the, the most resistant elements, I think. I think, you know, triathletes are essentially pretty good at nailing their uh, training program and, and most are really interested in nutrition. It's when you tell them they need to be mindful and control their stress that they look at you like you're speaking another language. Yeah, it's really hard for people to comprehend and absolutely I was in that boat. I cr- 
had doctors telling me last year, here's your solution to feeling absolutely miserable. Go meditate. I was like, surely not. (laughs) But, I mean, it's physiology. We know that when the stress hormone cortisol is elevated, the liver dumps glucose into the blood. So you can be going as clean or as low-carb or as fat-adapted as possible, but if there's glucose in your bloodstream, you're not going to be able to get satiety. You're going to be craving carbohydrates. And, I mean, it's basically just going against everything you're working so hard to achieve. So it makes a lot of sense when you break it down like that. It does. It's just, you know, I've got to uncover why so many of us are resistant to it. And it's amazing when people jump on board. They have these epiphanies and they can manage their training and their life and they end up being able to cope with more training and I love that. So when people first start with me, let's say they're an adrenal mess as I like to call it, I obviously will not start them at um, over 10 hours. I'm going to bring it right back. But it's also relative to their life. If they've got four kids, one kid, no work, lots of work, it's about that balance of what they've got going on in their life. Now, if people are generally prone to being stressed, uh, they could be working 20 hours versus someone that's working 60 hours that doesn't view stress in the same way. And that person... Working 60 hours potentially handle the same amount of training as that person working 20 purely because of how they handle stress. And that's a really interesting element that I've been able to witness with athletes. So my athletes that actually listen to me and go do their yoga and do their meditation end up being able to handle training, they recover better, and ultimately get better results. Yeah, well, I can speak firsthand. I mean... You shared a little testimonial of mine, I think it was last week, on holistic endurance because I've got Challenge Melbourne in two weeks and I'm certainly feeling the best I've ever felt. But, you know, I've really been dedicated to all the elements of training, nutrition, recovery, yoga and meditation. And, you know, it, I can I can certainly vouch for that. And it is that personal experience that, that cements, cements it for you. So I encourage everyone to give it a shot because, as we yeah. say, the proof will be in the pudding. Yeah, and on that as well, I think just to um, dispel myths around meditation, you don't have to sit in the corner and cross your legs and do it for an hour. There are really simple, effective ways. I was introduced to it using an app called Buddhify, where the meditations go from five minutes up to, I think, a max of 12. So it's really easy to do. It gives you scenarios of walking in the park, waiting at the doctor's, eating lunch so you can be anywhere practicing this and just bringing down those cortisol levels on a regular basis throughout the day and then also doing it before you go to bed because the state that we go to sleep in is the state that we're most likely to wake up in and if we go to bed uh, after watching like a high adrenaline tv show or being on the computer and doing work we're just transferring all that cortisol into the next day impeding our recovery and probably keeping our inflammation high yeah absolutely and i love that concept of moving meditation i i learned that first many years ago now in a book called pieces every breath and they teach you mm. to apply that principle to activities that you do every day so it could be your commute it could be brushing your teeth and I love that because not many of us are going to burn the candles and find a cushion and sit cross-legged. Like, it just doesn't happen. And Correct. so 10 minutes on your commute or 10 minutes when you're walking the dog, it's so practical and everybody has 10 minutes. Yeah, absolutely no excuses. And for those performance people out there, meditation is a key psychological skill for race. 
thing because if you can keep calm prior to your race because you understand meditation and breathing techniques, you're again going to be more effective uh, at that race start and perhaps something you get kicked and smacked in the head during the race and your heart rate goes through the roof. These meditation tools really help you bring it back down, keep calm, carry on and get the job done. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and the breathing techniques are also brilliant for running. They're going to make you a more efficient runner. And help you embrace the suck a bit more. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's, it's getting okay with pain because meditation isn't about pushing feelings away. It's about accepting them and noticing that they're there. So it's the same with pain when we're racing. Oh, yeah, I noticed that you're there. Cool, welcome to the party. Let's do this. Rather than, oh, my God, I'm hurting. What do I do about it? Yeah, that's so true. It's a really big part of endurance training. Yes, it is. That's been so fantastic. Lots of information gold mines, and we'll share all the links that we've spoken about in the show notes. Before we wrap up today, Katie, where can our listeners find you? Best place would be Facebook, which you can search Holistic Endurance Try Coaching. Otherwise, head to my website, holisticendurance.com.au, and I'm also on Instagram. Beautiful. Thanks so much for being a part of The Real, and I'm sure you and I will chat very soon. Thanks, Steph. I've loved it. See you soon. Bye. Hello, Marcus Pierce here, CEO of The Wellness Couch and co-host of 100 Not Out and Inside the Champion's Mind. If you are champing at the bit to take your 2015 to the next level, then I invite you to this special one-night-only event on Thursday, February 5th. The Exceptional You, Unleash Your Greatness is a boutique two-hour workshop on designing your very own unique exceptional life blueprint. How have the most magnificent people ever to live conducted their lives? What wisdom have they passed on? What do they eat? How do they move? How do they think? And how can you be one of them? I share all of this at this special one-night-only event. Tickets are just $47 and a special two-for-one offer may still be available. For details, simply go to exceptionallifeblueprint.com.au forward slash you or check out 100 Not Out on Facebook. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.